this is the end of the story to me. This was a moment of disruption. People did not know what to do. They panicked as they should have. And then they slowly adapted. They built a new normal. And then they discovered that some of the greatest opportunities were here all along, but they were not looking at them. And they, I hope, will learn from this moment that this is the thing we need to be constantly doing. What's up, everyone? I'm Chris Ronzio, founder and CEO of Trainual, and this is Organized Chaos. As always, we're taking a page from a different leader's playbook so you can put it in yours as you build your own, and you just got to hear from Jason Pfeiffer. This episode's all about building for tomorrow. Jason's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and the author of the book, Build for Tomorrow, which now is in bookstores, so you can get that. He's also the host of two podcasts. One's called Build for Tomorrow as well, which which is all about why modern concerns aren't actually that scary. And then he's got Problem Solvers, which is about un unexpected problems that entrepreneurs are solving in their businesses. Prior to Entrepreneur, Jason worked as an editor at Men's Health, Fast Company, Maxim, and Boston Magazine. And he's been writing about business and technology for years in Washington Post, Slate, New York, and others. I just love this conversation with Jason. He was a guest at Playbook, our annual event back in 2020, when so much in the world was changing. He was just getting started with this book at the time. So we got to follow up 18 months later on what he's doing, how the world has changed and evolved, and his book, which is now out this week. So you'll get to hear a lot about change. Change is one of those topics that as businesses you deal with, whether you want to or not. There's change of rolling out new policies and processes. There's new products that get rolled out. There's change for your customers. There's change for your employees. The market's changing. So how do you navigate that all? Well, Jason talks about his four-step process and makes it very practical for you to go through. And he also shows how you can use history to kind of calm your jets when you get nervous about things that are going on present day. So take a listen. I know you'll love this one. Hey everyone, welcome to Organized Chaos. I'm your host, Chris Ronzio, and today we've got with us Jason Pfeiffer. Hey, Jason. Hey. Good to see you again. Thank you. Good to be here. I appreciate so, you reaching out. Yeah, we had the honor of hosting you at Trainual's event playbook in 2020. It was the end of 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, you were starting to work on the book, but knew this week your book, Build for Tomorrow, is finally hitting bookshelves and available for people to get. So we're going to dig into that. But I want to I want to take us back to end of 2020. You were in a room working remotely. You had shut down your office. There was a big mm -hmm. bear photo behind you and people it were was. commenting on the pillow colors and all that. So <laughs> what's your remote situation these days, or your working situation? So what you were describing was me being in Boulder. I uprooted, as, as so many people did, kind of uprooted my life at the very beginning of the pandemic. My wife and I and our two little boys went from Brooklyn, where we live to Boulder, Colorado. We moved in with my parents. We were there for 18 months, much longer than we expected. And it was a real, it was a, it was a, I, I was sort of, I'm like hesitating on whether to call it a full life changing experience, but it, it, it illuminated things about me and what I want that I did not expect, uh, you know, as I think it, this pandemic has done for so many people. And Anyway, we, we eventually left 18 months later and we came back to Brooklyn. So I am now talking to you in a much smaller space than there was in Boulder. 
and uh, there's you know a noisy street just outside. But life, um, I don't know, life, uh, life, uh, you follow it where it leads you. Well, that's that's great. Glad you're back in uh, in New York. I am in the same exact room that we did the last interview, so you know <laughs> some, some things don't change. But we're going to talk yeah. a lot about change today. Um, I I know one of the stories you told last time, which not everyone listening to this was at that event. So mm-hmm. you talked about the the bubonic plague and how something yeah. like that has influenced the modern economy, and it really set the stage for for change. I, I know that that appears in your book too. So can you can you share that story to just kind of set up this conversation? Yeah, it is so. This is something that I I like to open talks with because it was so mind blowing to me. You know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, like March, April, twenty twenty, I got to wondering: Did anything good come out of the worst version of what we're about to go through? We didn't know in March or April, twenty twenty, what we were in for at all. What kind of disruption is this going to be? How safe are we? And I just thought, just to just to get a sense for what we're in for here, let me talk to somebody who knows about the worst version of this. So anyway, I called this guy Andrew Rabin, who's a medieval scholar at the University of Louisville, and I said, Andrew, did anything good come out of the bubonic plague? You know, 1300s, killed upwards of 60% of Europe. Anything good come out of that? And he said... Yes, actually, a number of really great things came out of it. But one of them was this. So uh, take you back to grade school. The medieval economy was a lord and serf system, which is to say that the the lords owned the land and they owned the serfs. Uh, The serfs worked the land for no pay. It was slavery. We're talking about slavery. And then the bubonic plague comes along and it kills upwards of 60% of Europe. Rich, poor, does not matter. And at the end of the worst of it, the lords go back to the serfs and they're like, well, it's time to get to work, right? Let's let's get back to making some money here. But something has changed. What has changed is that there are no longer enough serfs for all the lords, which means the lords are now competing against each other for the serfs. They're saying, come work for me. No, 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 come work for me. No, I will have to, I will give you this, I guess. No, I will give you that. And out of this is born the very, very beginnings of the employment contract as we know it, the idea that labor has a value and that the people who do that work should be compensated for it, the thing that is bringing you and me, Chris, together right now and drives people to listen to this podcast comes out of the bubonic plague. And that is such a powerful reminder, I think, that through all moments of change, big or small, we will reach what we can call a wouldn't-go-back moment, a moment in which we have something that is so valuable that we say, you know, I would not want to go back to a time before I had this. Not to say that anybody wants 60% of Europe to be killed in a bubonic plague. No, we do not. But seeing as it happened, the outcome was beneficial. And that, I think, is the thing that we all need to be looking for. And I think it's valuable to remember that these things come out of difficult, challenging, disorienting moments, and that there is a way to look at them and say, hard as this may be, it is also a reordering of things. It is a pushing outside of boundaries. It is a prompt 
to think mm-hmm. differently and perhaps better about the things that we do and find ways to grow our lives and our businesses. Yeah, so when we talked about this last time, it was about 18 months ago, and we kind of left it with this open-ended, well, we'll see what happens. You know, it's right. it's 2020, we'll see what comes out of it. So yeah. over the last 18 months or so, what has come out of it? What what trends are you seeing that have emerged from this uh, th- this this thing that we were thrust into? So the most powerful thing that I feel like I saw was a reconsidering of the impossible. This this to me is what defines the great phase that so many people moved into. In which, so you know, I I had watched all these businesses and all these entrepreneurs change the way that they work, to change who they serve, change how they served them, really rethink what they were doing. And I wondered, what is it about a moment like this that it is enabling that? And one of the people I talked to was this guy whose name is Brian Berkey. He's a legal studies and business ethics professor at the uh, Wharton. I always always want to call it the University of Wharton, but that's not what it is at all, Wharton. Uh, And uh, and he said, uh, uh, what is it about these kinds of moments that enable this kind of change? And he said, moments of disruption shift the window on what we are willing to collectively take seriously, which is a very academic way of saying you know, we all build, and it's so natural that we do it, we build these boundaries around ourselves. You know, we build this filter and we let what we think the good ideas are through. We surround ourselves with the good ideas. And then we say all the bad ideas, the impossible ideas, the too difficult ideas, those are over there. Those are outside. I'm not interested in those ideas. They're terrible. They're stupid. They're harmful. They're going to waste my time. And again, We've got to do this. You know, Chris, you're a busy guy. You don't have time to engage with literally every possible idea that comes your way. It's not possible. There's too many things to do. So we have to build these filters. But the problem is that they are very imperfect systems. We will leave great ideas outside the boundaries. We will filter out fantastic ideas. And we will not realize it, and we will not really find the incentive to go searching for them. What, what's the incentive to disrupting something that works and going to find something that we thought didn't work? That doesn't make any sense. But then yeah. a moment of great change comes along. In this case, it was a pandemic, but it could be anything. And it forces us, as as uh, Brian said, to shift the window on what we're willing to collectively take seriously, or what I've just called reconsider the impossible. And we say, well, these things that are now inside of our box, they don't work anymore. We've got to look outside. And we find that some of the greatest ideas, the most transformative ideas, were not the product of supernatural forces. They were not beamed down from Mars. They were just there. And we had discarded them. We had said that they wouldn't work. And now, in fact, they're exactly what we need. So this is what I saw. This is the end of the story to me. The end of the story is that this was a moment of disruption. People did not know what to do. They panicked as they should have. And then they slowly adapted. They built a new normal. And then they discovered that some of the greatest opportunities were here all along, but they were not looking at them. And then they seized them. And they, I hope, will learn from this moment that this is the thing we need to be constantly doing. 
that we don't need a pandemic to force us to reconsider the impossible, that we don't need a moment of massive disruption to say, you know what, what am I missing? What am I leaving out? That we can be doing this all the time. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we do. So in some ways, you know, one of the the massive changes that's happened over the last couple of years is people reconsidering where they work and shifting yep. jobs more frequently. And it almost relates back to that idea in the bubonic plague in Europe and, and you know, where there's not enough people to go around and they're, they're, they, they can start to have, uh, you, you know, like uh, instead of employment contracts or wages for the first time, a lot yeah. more choice than they ever did to pick the right environment. So mm-hmm. is, are you seeing more similarities that you didn't expect from that, that story? Huh? You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, yeah. You know, in a way, yes. Yeah. So the, the other thing about that story, which I hadn't mentioned, but that goes perfectly to what you were just saying, is that a lot of those serfs didn't take the Lord's, they, they weren't like, oh, okay, well, Lord, now that you're offering something, I shall go work back on your land. A lot of them said, you know what, screw it. And I'm going to go, I mean, they didn't have the word back then, but what we would now say, I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. They started the first merchant class. They moved to the cities and they started selling textiles or you know whatever else was in need. And, um, and you see a version of that now where people say, you know, I, why am I doing this exactly? What was the reason for this? And they're going on to create, to define their lives in ways that are more meaningful to them. I think this is wonderful. I realize the disruption that it causes and the soul searching that it's going to cause for everybody, but how can we how can we go wrong by having everybody step back and say, you know, I could be a more enthusiastic, productive contributor to our economy and more invested in my life and in the people that I work with and serve if I do things on my own terms. And that's going to force a lot of employers to say, well, what can I do to avoid people leaving? And that's a good thing. We should always be doing that, right? I mean, we should, nobody should be comfortable. If I have no fear that my team will ever leave me, what on earth is my incentive to create a good working environment? I have no incentive, right? Right. This is, this is, I think the, the danger of comfort is that we stop evaluating, we stop reevaluating, we stop trying to come up with, new ideas, things should always be near breaking as far as I'm concerned, because that forces us to constantly work to fix and to improve. So I love it. I, I love what I'm seeing. I, I recognize that it creates a lot of hardship. And I, and I, I, what I don't love is, is people, you know, struggling to staff their businesses and, and, and all that. I mean, that's terrible, but, but I do love on a societal level that we are, we are all, really thinking hard about what it is that we want and how to get it. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with asking those questions. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a positive forcing function. I mean, it's If it's creating more opportunities and better cultures because yeah. you, you feel like you have to do that to compete, that's a good thing for everybody. So uh, mm-hmm. startups and entrepreneurship seem just completely on the rise. I saw some stats that in 2020, it was up 24%. And then in 2021, startups were up 35%. I'm sure you have better data than I do as editor of Entrepreneur. But are you seeing this just boom in in startups? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the numbers, the numbers absolutely bear it out. The I, 
I, I can't, I, I'm so bad with statistics that I don't remember it, but I, I, I do know that the number of new uh, business applications in the United States reached a decade high. And then I think went on to like far surpass that. So it's pretty wild and awesome. And I, 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 we see it in the energy that people bring to entrepreneur, the brand, I, you know, I mean, we've just reached record highs in terms of, uh, just, just a lot, you know, I mean, we our our, our traffic, our interest, our, our circulation, our, our you know, it, it's just, we are perfectly positioned, which is it's great. It's great. It's a great time to be in a magazine called entrepreneur. But, um, but I think the real winner of course is us all look, people are going to start these businesses and a lot of them are going to face this, this statistic. Here's a statistic that people throw around a lot. I'm sure you've heard it, which is, what is it? One or 50% of businesses fail in the first four years. I think that's the statistic. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I could have that a little bit wrong because, again, like I said, not great at statistics. That's why I'm not a math major. But <laughs> I... Um, but you know, there's something really interesting about that because I, you see that thrown around a lot, and it's often thrown around in the context of, well, it's real risky, real risky, what you're doing, and yeah, that's true. There's risk. There's risk involved. There's risk involved in everything, right? This is not like you know, there's risk involved in crossing the street. You, you have to decide where you want to place your risk. Or there's risk in staying in a job for 20 years too. So, uh, uh, so sure, there's risk involved. But I think what's most important to understand is that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a misnomer to say that the businesses fail, you know, because it, mm -hmm. it, it looks like a positive thing when a business pivots. But in one sense, the original idea failed and they moved on to something totally yeah. different, maybe just within the same entity. Right. Or or someone was grinding and, and you know, learning and then they took a job that they weren't qualified for before that, you know, this business created for them. So I, I, I think there's a lot of ways. That's right. And you just don't know what you're going to learn until you put yourself into a learning environment. You know, I, yeah. I mean, this, this is, I have this piece of advice that I always give, um, you know, people as they're struggling with their careers. I tell it to students a lot and it is 
that I feel like you you always need to be working your next job. You know, in front of you at any one time, in front of me, there are always two, there are two sets of opportunities. Opportunity set A, opportunity set B. Opportunity set A is everything that's being asked of you. Show up at a job, you've got a boss, the boss needs you to do things, you got to do it or you're going to get fired. That's opportunity set A. Be good at that. Opportunity set B is everything that is available to you that nobody is asking you to do. And that could be anything. I mean, that could be opportunities at your job that simply just nobody's asking you to do. But it also could be just anything that you can learn outside of your job. You want to start a podcast, for example? Nobody's asking you to do it, but you could go do it. It's really easy. You just buy a microphone, plug it into a computer and start talking. Like, it's not that hard. It's hard to make it good, but, you know, just starting is not hard. And I am of the belief, and this is how I've run my career, that opportunity set B is always more important, infinitely more important. It's not to say opportunity set A is unimportant. It's not. You have to do a good job, but the things that are asked of you or you'll get fired. But if you only focus on opportunity set A, you will only be qualified to do the thing that you're already doing. And opportunity set B is where growth happens. It's Mm. where you add to your value. It's where you become more qualified. Even if you have no idea what you're going to be qualified for, just by adding to your skill sets, you create opportunity in a real crazy zigzag way where because you do this, now you know how to do that. And then you're going to go do this. And then you're going to do that. And then whatever. And like, you don't know where it's going to go until you're actually there. And starting a, starting a business, let's say, it's just it's one of those things. It doesn't it's it's not the only way to do it. But I mean, to your point of how it will just you'll learn something, you'll become more qualified in some way to do something. That's totally true. Nobody's asking you to do it. Nobody asked you to start a business. You you did it. You know, it is opportunity set. It is opportunity set B. We should always be chasing it. So you've got this broken down on your website and your bio and anybody should just go there, go to your website and look at this. But can you just give us high level? Like, what's the example for you? What is your A and your B right now? Yes. Well, so I'll give you my A. I'll give you an A and a B from before so you can see how it plays out and then I'll tell you what my A and B is now. So my A and B before, when I was a fast company, this was years ago, I I was an editor at fast company. Uh, We started a video department. This guy, Scott was hired. He built a video team and I was not expected to be a part of this in any way. I was a print editor. But I thought, you know, I should learn how to be good in front of a camera. Why? I don't know. Just be, seems like it'll be a good thing to know how to do. And so I volunteered. It was an opportunity set B. And I got in front of the camera and I was pretty good at it. And Scott gave good direction and I, uh, I, I grew. And I ended up with, I made these two different series. And I was thinking as I was doing it, what, what am I going to, what is the point of this? What is this for? Which is a question that I we should maybe circle back to. Like I love, I'm obsessed with the question. What is it for? Um, and uh, and I didn't know what is this going to be for. Is if is it that I'm going to uh, get a TV show? Nobody ever gave me a TV show. But I'll tell you what it. I'll tell you what it did. It taught me how to talk on camera. It taught me how to talk it with with an energy that is unnatural when you're just talking at a table to somebody else. And that helped me once I started getting opportunities on stage uh, as a speaker. It helped me when I started to think about becoming a podcaster. And it helped me be more comfortable when there were suddenly television opportunities to go on to the Today Show or whatever and talk about something. And then years and years and years later, 
couple jobs later, I am talking to the president and the CEO of Entrepreneur Media about becoming the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And one of the things that they really liked about me was that I had the skill set to go out and advocate for the brand, that you could put me on TV as the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and I'd be good at it. And, um, you know, I got the job, obviously, still have the job. Not to say that that was the only thing that got me the job, but it certainly was a factor. And now when I look back on it, I say, well, look, I, I stood in front of that camera at Fast Company for reasons that I did not know and reasons that I could not have anticipated. And it paid off in ways that I, I, I mean, I would have never possibly planned for. Um, and I don't think that I would have been nearly as qualified to be the editor-in-chief of this magazine had I not stood in front of that camera when I was at Fast Company. And that is important and powerful. And it's a lesson that I continue with today. So you ask, like, what's my opportunity set B now? Well, I mean, opportunity set A is doing a good job at Entrepreneur, making sure you know, we're, we're, we're producing high quality stuff. We're helping our audience that the brand is growing all that stuff. But, but opportunities at B, I mean, in a way it's what I'm doing with you right now. Right. I mean, I wrote this book and I'm talking about it on podcasts and I'm getting my name out there. And what on earth is the point of this? Why am I doing this? I mean, I have some theories, but I don't know, man, I'm doing it because <laughs> It is, seems to be really valuable to helping me create a bigger version of myself, to making sure that I have a clarity of purpose to an audience that I am extremely fortunate to be able to reach, and then to be able to reach beyond that audience and build a platform that I can own myself. And what am I going to do with that? Again, I have theories. I, I have a, I, you know, I have theories. I have an LLC called Hey Pfeiffer Productions. I make a whole bunch of media. We'll see. But I will tell you what, there's no way that any of those theories are ever going to play themselves out if I don't just go do it. So I figured out how to make time, despite all the crazy things that I'm already doing, to write a whole damn book, to market <laughs> this whole damn book, and we're going to see what this does for me. It's you know, I, this is the only way to do it. You can go figure it out. But it, it starts by doing. Did, did I know you spent time in Boulder. Did you ever rock climb? Is that something you're into at all? No, that terrifies me. I did, I did a lot of hiking. A lot of all hiking. right. Hiking, rock climbing. So I, I went with a group of friends once up to Colorado and we did this like mm -hmm. bouldering kind of thing where we're, we're like scaling a wall. And as you're describing opportunity A and B, I'm thinking about how when you're climbing something, you've got like one foot that's on stable footing and you've got the other one that's like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to land. I don't know what this yeah. is going to do. And, and that, that it, it resonates with me. I, I just love this idea. And I think uh, when, whether people are working at a company, running a company, it's something everybody can learn from. Yeah, I, that's totally right. I like that visual metaphor. And, and, and you're right because it's the only way it's the, I mean, look to boil it down this simple, it almost sounds stupid, but I'll say it like, it's the only way to move right? You can't go up or down the side of that cliff based solely on the foot that is planted. You're not going anywhere. You're just going to stay where you are. So you got to move and you're not going to know where it is. And, and that's why, you know, I said earlier, I was like, you know, there's a great risk in staying at a company for 20 years. There is. The, the, the risk is that you don't do anything. Yeah. Um, you got to move and, uh, and you don't know, there's just no possible way 
to plan where you're going to land. It's just, it's not possible. So I think people get hung up on this and they stay in one place and they think, well, I, the, I, I, I'll, I'll do it when I have a good plan. Or I'll do it when I when I feel confident that I know where it's going to end up. And and you just you're not going to, you're mm-hmm. never going to. So you're going to stay where you are. The only way to get anywhere is to go blindly in the darkness. So let's talk more about the book Build for Tomorrow. Again, available this week. You started writing this book how long ago? Uh, I wrote it. From January to August of 2021. That's that's how long it takes to make books. I sold it December of 2020. I wrote it January to August 2021. After that, editing, marketing, blah, 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 blah. So I know this is a combination of your own experiences and lessons from the past, but it's in a big way about change, which is what we've been talking yeah. about. So you know, why do people, business owners in particular, need to learn to harness the power of change? Like, and and can they control it? Uh, you can't control it, but what you can do is put yourself in the best position to benefit from it. Uh, I I think that people fear change because change is often equated to loss. You know, when you see something change, when you feel change coming to you, the first thing that you see is the thing you're going to lose. This has changed, and therefore this thing that I am comfortable with, that I am familiar with, perhaps this privileged position that I have uh, uh, either uh, gained or earned is, is going to be challenged. I don't like that. That sounds terrible. And, uh, and, and so you get nervous. And then, I'll tell you what you do next, you extrapolate the loss. So you say, well, because this is going to change, that is going to change. And then because that is going to change, that other thing is going to change. And very soon, you are down just an absolute rabbit hole of panic. And, uh, <laughs> and it does you no good. It does you no good. And it leads to really you can see how people can get themselves worked up into it, but it leads to kind of crazy making and illogical assumptions. I'm a big fan of history, as you as you know, um, with the whole bubonic plague thing. Let me tell you a quick story. There's this guy, so um, uh, the dawn of recorded music, late 1800s, the phonograph is introduced. It's the very first time. Consider how absolutely astounding the very first record player phonograph would have been prior to that for all of human history all of human history the only way that you could listen to music was if there was a human being playing an instrument in front of you the only way and then suddenly this machine comes along and it can play music by itself because it has recorded it at some other time shocking Shocking. And for the average consumer, this was a this was a wonderful, it was a great fascination. For musicians, it was terrifying because they saw themselves being replaced. And John Philip Sousa, famous composer, he wrote all these military marchers you're still familiar with today. Da, 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 da. He he led this resistance and uh, and he wrote all these just fantastic, wonderful crazy arguments against recorded music. And one of them, my favorite, 
goes like this. He says, well, so if recorded music, this is, I think he wrote this in 1906. He says, if recorded music, uh, if the phonograph enters the home, well, there will be no more live performances of music in the home because why possibly would anybody play music with an instrument when they can just have a machine do it? And because there are no more live music performances in the home, mothers will no longer sing to their children. Because again, of course, why would they do that when there's a machine that can do it for them? And because children grow up imitating their mothers, the children will now grow up to imitate the machines, and thus we will raise a generation of machine babies. And that, that was his argument. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's funny, but you look at it and you think, uh, well, that, I do a version of that too, right? Like, that's exactly what we do. That is, that is extrapolating the loss. This is new, therefore I will lose that, therefore I will lose that, therefore I will lose that. And suddenly we're in like crazy territory real fast. And so what I think we need to do instead is we need to figure out how to extrapolate the gain. When there is a, right, you cannot control the change to your point, but what you certainly can do is control your response to it. And if we can start to figure out how to start to recognize the gain, to ask ourselves some basic questions, like what are we doing differently because of this thing. And how can that be put to good use, right? Just simple guiding questions. W what are we doing new? Well, we're, we're listening to music on a machine now. What kind of, well, here's another, another question. Kind of second question is like, well, what, what's, what, what skill or habit is that d developing? Well, people are now, um, people are now listening to music whenever they want and they're listening to whoever they want. How can that be put to, put to good use? Well, by God, if you're a musician, you now have the ability to reach people at any time who you may not have ever physically been able to reach. I mean, if previous, John Philip Sousa could only perform to people who that he could physically reach. He's only one man, can only travel so far, but now he could reach everybody. It's marvelous. You know, it, it, it created so many more jobs so many more opportunities to participate in music, so many new ways to make money in music. As it turns out, John Philip Sousa was protecting something that was limiting his industry. It's absolutely crazy. But it happened because he was extrapolating loss instead of extrapolating gain. That's what we need to do. That's mm. the way to start to face change. That's such a great example. Thank you for walking us through that. Random tangent, but do you know what the first thing ever recorded with phonograph was? <laughs> I feel like you would know this. Do you know it? Is this a pop quiz? I, I think I do. I think when I I did like a science fair project when I was in third grade or something, and I'm 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 second guessing if I'm right, but I think it is Mary had a little lamb. Yeah, I think Does that, that is like correct. That I, that was going to be. So I don't know if that was the actual literal very first, but there is an unbelievable very early recording of Mary had a little lamb. Um, yeah, so yeah it, I it had it be. playing at my booth. <laughs> did you? So. Oh, it's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's it's go back and and like find you can find them on online just these these old recordings. It's amazing. It's the closest you can get to like hearing a ghost. You know, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, so you touched on this a little that panic phase of extrapolating um, all the loss and and just going down this rabbit hole, but that's part of the yep. four phase approach in the book, right? So can you right. walk us through the just the the process in the that you describe in the book? Yeah. So, uh, you know, so, well, I, I used the language earlier here, but I'll, I'll use it again. So the book is structured in, in how I argue change happens, which is panic, adaptation, this is phase two, new normal, phase three, and then wouldn't go back, phase four. And look, in each of these, what we're ultimately doing is trying to guide ourselves 
through the most challenging parts, the feel the parts that feel like we're the most lost, and get to a place where we're we're constantly evaluating the opportunities in front of us and moving with a kind of trust that there is value at the end. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the the panic, for example, I spent quite a lot of time talking about like why we panic, right? Which, which, um, which I, I think a lot uh, goes towards this idea of, of extrapolating loss and, um, and how we tend to misunderstand uh, new things and we misunderstand the value that they have for us. Uh, you know, we, we oftentimes, for example, we, 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 we are often missing. And, and if, if we are in the position of introducing new things, I think that this is especially important, right? Because we we are we are often if you're an entrepreneur, you're doing two things at the same time with change, right? You are often the creator of change. You're introducing new things to people, you're trying to get them to embrace them, but you are also going to be navigating change yourself. And uh and in both cases, I think it's important to remember that people don't like new things. They don't. You know what they like? They like better versions of old things. They love better versions of old things, right? A better version of an old thing is the best thing possible because you're comfortable, you like it already, and now it's just going to be a little bit better for you. It's it's and 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 what I found as I've looked at innovation throughout history is that sometimes the most transformative technology is deeply resisted because it is seen as too radical a change, too much loss, and the creators of that technology oftentimes did not think about how they had to build, and here's here's my language, a bridge of familiarity. You got to bridge familiarity. You've got to recognize where people are coming from. What are they already familiar with? And then how can you lead them in a way in which they will feel like they are upgrading the thing that they're already familiar with rather than abandoning something and feeling lost? Fun example from history, the car. You know, everyone thinks that Henry Ford was the guy who turned uh, the car into a mass consumer product. And, you know, in many ways he was because of manufacturing. But something happened before Henry Ford that was equally important. And that was that in the very early days of the car, you know, people hated the car. They called it the devil wagon. Uh, They threw rocks at it. People yelled, get a horse at a car when it passed by on the street. And then... um, uh, the auto manufacturers realized they had a problem here. And the problem was that they had been talking about the car as a replacement for the horse. But people like their horses. They don't want you to come along and say, get rid of your horse. You needed to start talking about the car, and this is what they did. They started talking about the car as a better horse. Not a replacement to the horse, a better horse. So why don't we use some horse language? Words like horsepower. Start to name cars after horses, right? Give it a sense. There were like uh, fake horse heads on these early cars. Give it a sense that this thing is just an upgrade of something that you're already familiar with. Build a bridge of familiarity. And we often don't we often don't do that, but we need to do it. And I think that we also need to find when we are when we are going through moments of change ourselves, find the thing that can be the bridge for ourselves. I mean, I, I, how many, I've talked to so many people who have made radical career changes and it seemed absolutely terrifying. And I, I, I had a version of this myself. It seemed absolutely terrifying until they figured out what it was 
that is already inside of them that is useful in that next job, right? How can they make this massive change without actually changing all that much? That is so powerful. You know, I, I remember this crystallized once. I was talking to Stacey London, who used to have this show called What Not to Wear on TV. Oh, yeah, great and, show. Um, great show. And Stacey's wonderful. She's become a friend. And, um, and Stacy, so Stacy recently made like a massive career change. She basically left television and she became the owner and CEO of a company called State of Menopause. They make products to help people through um, menopausal symptoms. And um, and at first she was like, she she just did not know how to wrap her head around this possible change. She had been trying to like get a new TV show and it wasn't working out and she was feeling very dejected. And uh, and then this company came along and they were basically like, would you like to buy us? She was already, she was a beta tester. She was very active. And, um, and she was really, really racked about it until she came to this realization, which is that there's something in her core that is transferable from one to the other. It is not hmm. all about learning. Sure, there's still going to be lots to learn but at her core, she realized she is a truth teller. That was the core of what she did on television. It's the reason why What Not to Wear worked, because she is a truth teller. She will go out and she will tell you the truth and she will tell it to you in, a, in an unvarnished way. And she is now being asked to lead a company where she is talking to people who are going through menopause, you know, uh, and, um, uh, and, and uh, she's, she's going to have to have open, honest conversations about herself and about challenges, uh, physical challenges, things that are uncomfortable to talk about in public. And that requires yeah. being a truth teller. And she realized, you know, everything else is learnable. I can learn how to run this business. But the thing that's going to make me a success is the thing that I already have. Yeah. So the bridge of familiarity for her is that trait inside her that she can bring to this new opportunity. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Stacy and Clint um, always made me want to have uh, blazers. So that that was where I got my first blazers <laughs> from watching oh, that that's show. Really funny. That's uh, funny. Uh, yeah, so, I, I, I learned nothing from that show as I speak to you, uh, <laughs> ratty hoodie. So last question I want to ask here is yeah. when there's change happening, sometimes businesses are the ones that are rolling out change. And for our employees or our customers, it can be uncomfortable for them. So what would you recommend for uh, for people that are creating change to do in order to communicate it and, and you know, soften the blow, I guess? I think people need to understand what the ultimate purpose of it is, you know, and, and they need to be bought in on that. I'll give you a. This is this is the sidesteps it a little bit, but I but it'll I'll, it'll bring it back. So one of my favorite um, quote unquote laws is Goodhart's law. Uh, Goodhart's law says that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And what does that mean? Well, it, it it's really a commentary on incentives. Uh, when I was my wife and I were potty training our oldest son we would give him an M&M every time he peed in the potty. And this kid very, very quickly discovered that he could go to the potty, pee a tiny bit, hold the rest <laughs> in, get an M&M, wait a minute, go back to the potty, pee again, right? So this is Goodhart's law. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. He quickly understood what the incentive was. And even though the incentive was driving him towards one action, he realized that the action was not required to get the incentive. And so he just shortcutted it. And this is what happens whenever we incentivize things uh, through measures. Uh, you know, the business example could be that 
when let's say that you're running a car dealership and you want to sell more cars, uh, well, what would you do? You will, um, or you want to increase sales, I should say, what are you going to do? Well, you might, might want to give all of your uh, salespeople a incentive. Whoever sells the most cars this month gets uh, a bonus. Well, what, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. All the salespeople are going to start steeply discounting their cars. They're going to be giving them away for free because you have just incentivized numbers of cars sold. And so they don't care how much it sells for because you've incentivized them to simply sell the number of cars, right? And the reason why I'm telling you this is because oftentimes I think we create some kind of change. We need people to do something and we simply give them a direction and we say, go there. That's now the thing to do. And that doesn't work, right? The reason why Goodhart's Law happens is because people are not bought in holistically on the full vision of what it is that you are trying to achieve. They don't feel bought in. They don't feel like they are involved. My son had absolutely no understanding of why we were trying to get him to pee in the potty. He just knew that we were doing it. And so he was trying to figure out what's in it for him. And what's in it for him are M&Ms. And the more that you can help people feel bought in on the full vision of what's happening. If you are introducing some kind of change to your organization, how do you make sure that people feel like the work that they are doing is driving towards great purpose hmm. and that the work that they are doing is needed, is necessary, is valued? And that the change that they are going through, you understand it's a pain, it's inconvenient, but that you patiently and honestly explain what the purpose of it is and how it benefits them and how it helps them do the best work that they can do, the work that they love to do, the work that they have to care about or else why on earth are they showing up? especially when they can leave and go somewhere else, as we talked about earlier, because boy, now in this economy, they can. They better understand that. And so I think that the greatest thing that we can do when we introduce change or when we go through change is that we define the purpose of it and the big picture. And we make sure that everybody who is impacted understands it. Because without that, it's all chaos. And it all seems stupid and purposeless. But it's not. It's valuable. But as is such the problem with change, we just don't always understand that until the end. And so we need to get to the place where we can see the wouldn't go back moment as early as possible. So well said. I almost don't want to talk. I want to just kind of end the podcast there on, <laughs> on your on your statement. But I do want to just close close the loop here because you've got your new book, Build for Tomorrow, yeah. and I want everybody to go out and get it now that it's available. Uh, it also sounds like one of your opportunity B is maybe your son turning into a business mogul because he's pretty smart if he's if he's already gaming you for M and M's. Where can people find that's the book? That's true. That's true. Well, the kids. 
Yeah, kids figure out how to game you real fast. Uh, so you can find the book absolutely uh, anywhere, you know. Um, uh, so wherever you uh, buy books is where you can find uh, the book. But you can also go to uh, jasonpfeiffer.com slash book. And you, uh, you, I have all the buttons to every possible retailer that you would uh, want to uh, send your money to. Um, so uh, please go anywhere or also jasonpfeiffer.com slash book. Amazing. All right. Check out Jason's website, push all the buttons, get the book and listen to everything cool that he's doing, uh, both personally in his opportunity bees and at entrepreneur. Jason, always great talking with you. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure. Hey, thanks for listening to Organized Chaos. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a review or share it with anyone in your network that you think could benefit from this information. For episode show notes, podcast recaps, and tons of other small business news and inspiration, check out the manual. That's trainual.com backslash manual.